0: Morning, when I've read the Old Testament and come across portions that uh, call me to meditate on and love the law, uh, like Psalm 119 from our readings today, I've never quite known what to do. Um, Does that make me a bad Old Testament student? (laughs) Don't have to answer that. (laughs) Um, No, I love the Hebrew Bible, but the law, the law is weird um, and it's not often fun to read. Now, if you tell me that the law is good, Um, Well, there are some portions that I might find a bit difficult, um, but if I consider the limitations of my own understanding related to them, I can say, yeah, sure, the law is good. But is the law lovable? Mm. I don't exactly wake up in the morning thinking, boy, I can't wait to find out how many square cubits make up the footprint of the tabernacle. (laughs) (laughs) And not, not only am I a Goy, a Gentile, I live in 21st century America, and a lot of the law is specifically applicable to a tiny geopolitically insignificant kingdom that existed briefly during the Iron Age. But our lectionary today has given me the opportunity to meditate on the law over the past few weeks, specifically on the function of the law. When I consider all of the priestly code, the commandments, et cetera, I have to recognize that all of these things uh, function in a society. Specifically, the law functioned to shape, it, <clears throat> to shape the society in ways that would enable people to flourish in relation to one another and to God. And not only that, but the law says something about the character of the one who gives it. And when I consider that the law functions to show God's desire for our flourishing, the law starts to look a little lovable. Anyways, before moving to Deerfield um, to attend Ted's, I worked in and for a time lived at a residential program for teenagers called Shelterwood. Uh, these young women, Young men and women uh, lived in residence while progressing through regular therapy as they sought healing from and learned to live with the consequences of various traumatic experiences. In such an environment, one in which individuals are hurting and learning to replace maladaptive coping mechanisms with life giving ones, rules become very important and at times are literally life preserving. At Shelterwood, we had many house rules, but all of these rules serve two essential functions. Number one, they establish safety. And two, they shape models for healthy, flourishing community. The relationship between these two functions is seen in the role of vulnerability. The act of living in community, by its very nature, requires vulnerability. And vulnerability is only possible when individuals in the community feel safe. I do not think this model is unique to residential programs, but to all communities. So consider for a moment what house rules, principles, or guidelines you have in your own homes that allow everyone to feel safe so that loving relationships can grow. Just as these boundaries and house rules in our families and communities are established so that we can love one another and experience flourishing relationships, our reading from Deuteronomy today suggests a similar function of the law for ancient Israel. Deuteron- Deuteronomy 30 picks up with Moses addressing the Israelites on the plain of Moab, east of the Jordan River. Moses knows his death is imminent and he presents his final teachings to the people before they cross into Canaan, the home of their ancestor Abraham and the land in which God has promised to establish them as a people. Here it is helpful to note a theme which repeats throughout the Bible, the theme of exile and repatriation. I've heard one Old Testament teacher refer to repeated biblical themes as hyperlinks. I I like this. Um, Just like hyperlinks connect web pages on the internet, these repeated themes in the Bible connect different biblical stories. These connections in turn allow us to better understand biblical stories as they are read in light of one another, something we sometimes refer to as intertextuality. The repeated theme of exile and repatriation of leaving and returning home is seen, for example, in the account of Jacob's family leaving the land of their promise to go to Egypt. It's also seen in the return of the land uh, during the Exodus. It is also apparent when people of Israel and Judah are taken captive to Assyria and Babylon to return later to their ancestral home. We may even consider a parable such as the prodigal son. And there are many more examples, but the story which initially establishes these patterns the story to which all these other stories are hyperlinked, is the exile of humanity from Eden. It is this exile which precipitates all the others, and it is this, exi- and it is in this exile that creation groans as we long for a coming restoration in the new creation, a new Eden. This draw of humanity towards a new Eden, a place where we can dwell in fruitfulness with God and one another, is a major driving force in the development of the story of Scripture. And while it is not ultimately realized until the new creation, we can hear its echoes, we can hear echoes of this new Eden in the biblical stories of people who return home, like the story of the Exodus. And as this theme of exile and repatriation uh, doesn't simply repeat, but it moves forward. It's not just circular, it's more uh, helical. Um, It makes a circle, but it moves forward. Um, And we eventually see its end in Revelation uh, 21. But let's narrow our focus uh, from this bird's eye view of scripture um, to our passage for today. When Moses delivers to the people the words we have just read in Deuteronomy 30, the people are anticipating their entrance into the home promised to them. Moses has led the people out of slavery in Egypt, through the wilderness for 40 years, and is here restating the law of Sinai for a new generation that will enter the land under Joshua's leadership. From a literary perspective, in considering the cycle of exile and repatriation, This new generation of Israelites is about to cross the Jordan from the east, is returning home, and so entering a new kind of Eden. There are several hyperlinks to the Eden story in Deuteronomy 30, but one of the most prominent is the blessing of fruitfulness in the form of agriculture and children in verse 9, which states, Then the Lord your God will prosper you abundantly in every work of your hand, in the children of your womb, the offspring of your cattle, and the produce of your ground. For the Lord will again rejoice over you for good, just as he has rejoiced over your fathers. This blessing may be considered in contrast to God's proclamation in Genesis 3, 16 through 19, that children and agriculture will be produced in hardship. But according to Deuteronomy 30, in Israel, even the cows will prosper. For the Israelites, to stand on the bank of the Jordan is to stand on the threshold of an Eden-like home. But the Israelites have not lived in such a place before. And if they are to experience even like flourishing in the land, land, they need some guidance. And God, in his grace, gives them the law through Moses. These institutions, these instructions on how they ought to live in this new home are the house rules for Israel. But this is not just their home. This is the land given to them by God and in which they are meant to dwell in relationship with God as well as with each other. As we in our own household set rules, boundaries, traditions, and expectations that allow us to develop communities of flourishing with our spouses, siblings, parents, roommates, the law given to Israel presents them with principles for flourishing in relation to one another and to God. And as is typical of Deuteronomy, the book presents this as one part of a dichotomy, the way of God's house rules which lead to life, to home, and another way that leads to death, to exile. We need only to imagine the state of our own homes and relationships would be in without rules and boundaries to begin to recognize that the law given to Israel is good. It is good news. But how is the law good news? As Dr. Harris mentioned last week, uh, the law is revelatory um, and is also concerned with our hearts. It tells us of the holiness and righteousness of God. It tells us of his character, a character which leads to life and flourishing he desires for us. The law is also good news because it has chiefly to do with love. This is expressed first in the Shema of Deuteronomy 6.5, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. But the formula of the Shema is used as a summary of the law throughout Deuteronomy. It happens three times in chapter 11. We get it again in the middle in 13.19, and here in our passage today, three times again. As our reading for today makes clear, the law was to guide God's people in flourishing relationships with one another and with himself, so that, you may, so that you may live and be numerous, and that the Lord your God may bless you in the land where you are entering, as Moses says in verse 16. The law also assumes that it will be broken. The portion of Deuteronomy immediately preceding our reading for today, verses 1 through 14, anticipates that at times Israel will choose life and happiness, and at others it will choose death and adversity. The good news is that the law anticipates exile, and it promises restoration and repatriation. This demonstrates that the law is a form of God's grace. God knows us, our disobedience and our obedience, and he desires to restore us to himself and to guide us in restoration to one another. He desires for us a home of flourishing community. Keeping in the back of our minds that Deuteronomy characterizes the law of God um, as the house rules for Israel, that Israel at this point is standing on the threshold of their new home, and this connection to Eden we've made, Let's switch gears a bit to our gospel reading. Commentators and Bible readers have recognized in Matthew 5 the similarity of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount to Moses' giving of the law on Sinai in the book of Exodus. Um, I feel like I need to qualify a bit here just to recognize that there are just some tiny disagreements on how to relate Moses and Jesus. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So this is my understanding. (laughs) But the literary context of the Sermon on the Mount includes preceding events which suggest a close resemblance to the context and circumstances of Moses and Israel in the final chapters of Deuteronomy. We are told of Jesus' baptism in Matthew 3, which calls for, or perhaps hyperlinks, to the crossing of the Red Sea. Matthew 4 recounts the 40-day wilderness temptation of Jesus mirroring the 40-day wilderness wandering of the Israelites. I wonder as well whether Matthew's mention of the Jordan River immediately preceding Jesus' exposition on the law is not meant to recall the position of the Israelites on the far side of the Jordan receiving the law from Moses, but I might be getting carried away. (laughs) It is also helpful to note that it is imminently after Jesus begins, immediately after Jesus begins proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of heaven in Matthew 4, that we encounter Jesus on the mountain, teaching about the law. As we have seen in Deuteronomy, the law given to God's people before they before they enter what will become the kingdom of Israel, provides them with instructions on how to flourish in relation to God and one another in the kingdom he will establish. Similarly, Jesus' teaching on the law may be thought of as a presentation of the house rules for the kingdom of heaven that he is establishing. In giving these house rules, Jesus says that those whose righteousness does not surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees will not enter the kingdom of heaven. It may be easy to hear this as an indictment, a condemnation of our sinfulness, a way of saying you can't actually follow the law. And if our understanding stops here, Jesus' words are words of hopelessness. They are words of exile. They are words of death. But while Jesus prefaces his exposition on the law by stating that without a surpassing righteousness one cannot enter the kingdom, his exposition itself has apparently more to do with the character of the kingdom. He is expounding upon the law by reminding the crowd and us of what has always been its chief concern, how to love God, and to love each other well in God's home, whether that be the kingdom of Israel or the kingdom of heaven. The law has always been concerned with loving God and neighbor with our whole beings, even as we love ourselves. The law has always been concerned with matters of the heart. What then does Jesus mean in saying that one cannot enter the kingdom of heaven unless one's righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees? Um, In a way, he tells us in Matthew 23, he says, the scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, whatever they tell you to do, do and comply with it all. But do not do as they do, for they say things and do not do them. Jesus' indict- Jesus's indictment against the teachers of the law highlights their preoccupation with an outward expression of the law rather than the heart of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. They make minute tides of their spices, but do not act with mercy, they wash the outside of the cup, but not the inside. In their hypocrisy, they neglect the weightier provisions of the law, the matters of the heart. In this way, they are like dancing mimes. They move their bodies, pretending to interact with objects and with other people, but there is nothing there. They are play-acting. Jesus tells us that God's law is not like this. The rules for the kingdom are not like this. In, the kingdom, in God's kingdom... Uh, His house rules provide us with guidance for how to live in relationships that have substance, Mm -hmm. in relationships that flourish. Just as the instructions given through the law, the effects of which are summarized in Deuteronomy 30, provide the Israelites with God's house rules for the promised land, the instructions given by Jesus provide his disciples, us, with the house rules for the kingdom of heaven. What Jesus' exposition on the law helps us to understand is the character of the kingdom he is building It reveals the character of the one who builds the kingdom and tells us of the kinds of relationships he desires for us. In the words of Deuteronomy, he desires for us life and fruitfulness. This is not a condemnation, but Jesus telling us what the kingdom is like. People don't just abstain from murder. They don't even hate each other. They reconcile. They move towards each other in love. They keep their word, justice, mercy, faithfulness. This law is good news. It is the life of flourishing inner relationships that Jesus in the Gospels and God through Moses in the law invites us into. So back to our original question, why is the law good news? The law is good news because one, it is a means by which God reveals to us his character. And two, the character of God we see revealed in the law is a character of love that desires for us life, flourishing and communion with him and each other. And three, it is good news because the character of God that we see revealed in the law is a character that knows our failings and deeply desires to restore us and to bring us home. And this is the hope presented to us in Matthew and Deuteronomy, the hope of repatriation, that the cycle which begins with the exile from Eden, continues in the captivity and the exodus, culminates in in our entrance into the kingdom of heaven, becomes ultimately fulfilled in the new Eden, a new creation in which God will dwell with us. The law presents to us an invitation to hope and a God who loves us and restores us to himself and to one another.